The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel, where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our way of leading. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God commanded man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth, to be fruitful and multiply in ideas and influence, and to cultivate the garden, making sense of the earth around them, subduing and replenishing it for His glory. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because this world needs you right now. No matter who you are or where you find yourself, it's my deep prayer that as you listen, meditate, become courageous to act, and go deeper in your walk with God, some of you just at the beginning of that journey, that you will be changed back into the original image and likeness in which you were created. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and share. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. And so as I've said, our theme this month is on leadership. Last week, we were looking at leadership technique. And after class, I was really meditating on what we had just discussed. Sometimes it happens to me like that, where once we are finished, I really have a, a, another conversation with the Holy Spirit because I, I realize that, you know, even though the hour has ended, we're, we haven't finished the conversation. And so I was doing the dishes and I was meditating on, on this issue that Paul had raised for us, this issue of pressing on towards the mark and not having yet attained it, but not looking backwards and rather looking forwards in order to be able to attain it. And so I was thinking about that. And then I was also thinking about what the writer of Hebrews said, that we run this race. And as we are running this race, we are keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so it kept running through my mind, you know, running towards the mark, keeping my eyes on Jesus. Running towards the mark, keeping my eye on Jesus. Running towards the mark, keeping my eye on Jesus. Running towards the mark, keeping my eye on Jesus. And then I heard the Holy Spirit say, Jesus is the mark. Jesus is the mark. And so we have this mark that is moving before us in the race. He's not still and so this is the reason why Paul is trying to catch him, because Jesus is moving ever ahead of us, leading us on, taking us deeper and deeper until we make it home. He says to us that he's gone ahead of us to make a place for us, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so then the picture that I had of this race was not simply us running towards this mark that is not moving and we just get ourselves from the front of the race to the finish line but that actually this is more like a horse race or a greyhound race where there's actually something moving before the horses that they're actually chasing after as though they're trying to catch it and so this is the race that we're actually running and yet we know that the scripture tells us elsewhere that all have missed the mark and so do not share in the prize. And this is the literal translation for the Greek word hamartia, which in English translate to sin. We know that scripture, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what happens to us is that we miss the mark. Because of sin, we miss Jesus. And so I say all of this by way of introduction as we continue to meditate and contemplate in this month of leadership, because my prayer for all of us is that we will not miss it, that you will not miss what God is saying to us through these messages, that you, you might think that we've been 
talking about leadership and talking about leadership, you might think that you've been doing leadership and doing leadership, but I want you to simply launch your faith. Take these teachings seriously. Believe that there is something new and there is something deep that God wants to tell you about how you are leading in this particular time and space. Because if you can catch this revelation of leadership, it is going to empower you to recast your whole life. In fact, if you are going to get anything out of these teachings, you need to understand that leading comes from within. And so if you're going to see change, you're going to have to apply the word very practically to yourself. What this means is that if you're going to be honest with yourself throughout this month, then it is going to make you uncomfortable. And that discomfort that you will feel if you are willing and if you are honest, that discomfort is the sensation of you putting away your soul man, putting away the old man, and now putting on your spirit man. Paul said, when I was a child, I acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so in this season, the Holy Spirit is calling you and calling me. He's calling us to be men. He's calling us to lead like a man. And I don't want you to get hung up on the gender pronouns. I am happy to call myself a man. I'm happy to, in this season, put away my soul man and put on my spirit man. You know, there's an American um, preacher, her name's Beth Moore, and she talks about this gender thing. And she says she doesn't worry too much about, she said women in the church shouldn't worry too much about being called the sons of God, becoming sons of God, because the men, the guys have to deal with being the bride of Christ. So let us not get too worried about man, woman. What I'm saying to you tonight is what Paul said, that when I was a child, I acted like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so in this month of leadership, let us put away the child man. Let us put away the soul man. Let us put on the spirit man so that we can lead from him. And this change, this putting off and putting on is going to make you uncomfortable. And if it doesn't, then it means then you're not really listening or you're not really ready to make that exchange. So I, I invite you into the discomfort. Tonight we're going to continue where we left off last week. Last week we were speeding, speaking about leadership technique and we're going to go deeper into the self because last week the question that I started with, the question that I asked you was, what kind of leader do you want to be? And we made the point that the response to that question will naturally flow out of the kind of man or woman you currently are, the kind of man or woman you want to be, the kind of follower of Jesus you are. And all of these, when you are able to chart them and compare them and draw arrows to chart the path of how you're going to move from one to the other, will paint a picture for you of the kind of leader you want to be because your leadership comes from within. Your leadership is going to come out of the kind of man or woman that you are, that you are becoming, and the kind of follower of Jesus that you are and that you are becoming. So you need to have a fairly good handle on these things. You need to have a fairly good handle of who you are and who you are becoming. And so the question that I'm asking this evening is who then makes the best leaders? Who makes the best leaders? Is it hard leaders or soft leaders? Is it fast leaders or slow leaders? Is it quiet leaders or loud leaders? Who makes the best leaders? Well, the answer is, is none of these necessarily. Even if it sometimes seems as though we have cultural biases towards one or the other, depending on where we come from, we might think that 
hard leaders are better, or loud leaders are better, or fast leaders are better. But there's no particular answer. These are all perceptions. And as a side note, just going, thinking about leading quietly or leading loudly, leading as introverts or leading as extroverts, you know, when you look at the literature, there's actually this debate going on in the literature as to whether Jesus was an introvert or whether Jesus was an extrovert. And those who argue that Jesus was an extrovert point to the fact that, well, Jesus was always in the crowd. Jesus was always hanging out with people. He was always eating with people. He was always talking to people, touching people. And so they say, you know, these are all the signs of someone who's an extrovert, you know, life of the party, conversation maker, storyteller. But those who say that, no, Jesus was an introvert, actually point to the fact that very frequently Jesus would go off into a solitary place. And so the answer, obviously, is that Jesus was neither introvert or extrovert, or that Jesus was both introvert and extrovert. But I take this little detour to just point out that for us, it's the same, that the best leaders are not necessarily any of those that we've listed above. So the best leaders are not necessarily the extroverted ones or the introverted ones. But the best leaders are the ones who are able to lead from the best versions of themselves. And the best version of yourself is always the spirit-filled version. And so tonight we are going to speak about leadership temperament and how temperament gets modulated by the Holy Spirit. Our text this evening, we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6. The word of the Lord says, The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hands find to do, for God is with you. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting Father, Lord, we ask you this evening to stretch forth your hand over the school of ministry and leadership. Father, we ask that you would guide us this evening as we embark on this exploration. We ask that you would release upon us wisdom and understanding and discernment, that you would open our eyes and our ears, our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears to hear you. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, that you would open us to receive you. I ask, Lord, that you blow on this assembly one more time. And in blowing upon us, you would stir our temperaments within us, that you would stir up, Lord, that which is useful to you and that you would blow away that which you can no longer use. We say, Lord, that we must decrease, but you must increase. And as we look at leadership this month and as we look at our own temperaments this evening, Lord, grant us the humility and the courage to look at ourselves as we truly are so that we would have the humility, Lord, to allow ourselves to be changed so that we would not interfere with your plans and your purposes and that your will would be fulfilled. Father, I ask you to meet, meet each and every person here at their point of need because you know what, where those are. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed. Amen. So as I said, tonight we're going to speak about leadership temperament. And the takeaway message, if you can't stay for the, for the next 45 minutes, the takeaway message is that there's no single temperament that has any better leadership tendencies, no better temperament. That all temperaments have strength, but because we are marred by sin, all temperaments also have weaknesses. And we're going to look at how, once you have a better sense of what your temperamental strengths and weaknesses are, then we can modulate them. We modulate them first by working on them, 
So remember last week we said that leadership is a practice. You can practice it. You can develop it like an elite athlete, like a sprinter. You can devote hours and hours and hours of training and learning in order to improve your technique. So we can work on our temperaments. But secondly, and perhaps most importantly, we can yield to the Holy Spirit. We can surrender to him to allow his fruit to shape our temperament. And when we begin now to look at the temperamental weaknesses, as godly leaders, we have to start treating those weaknesses as sin. And I know already someone's going to be nervous. Oh, sin! But we have to treat the weaknesses as sin if we're going to overcome them. But first, let's look at some definitions. Let's look at temperament and let's try to understand a little bit how it differs from character and how it differs from personality. Because loosely, we use those terms interchangeably, but they're not entirely the same. So when we speak about temperament, we're speaking about the combination of inborn traits that subconsciously affect our behavior. The, our, our ways of being that we're not conscious of, but that affect how we behave. And our temperaments most often are genetically linked. So we inherit them, kind of. We inherit them from not only our parents. Whenever we think about genetics, we always think that a person is made up of the mixture of their mother and father. And I'm just speaking in genetic biological terms. Let's set the spiritual aside for a moment. But actually, scientists will tell you that every person is made up of six people. So you have the genetic mixture of your mother and father, that's two. But then your mother and father each have the genetic mixture of their mother and father. So that's four more. So four plus two is six. So each person, as far as the pool of genes that will combine and permute to make them up, each person is a unique combination of six people, two parents, four grandparents, and those inborn traits that affect our behavior is what we call temperament. When we start looking at character, we understand character to be this temperament, but this temperament that has been modified. And what are the things that will modify temperament early on in life when the human is still being formed? It's our childhood training. It's the kind of household you were brought up in. It's our education. It's the basic attitudes and beliefs and principles that we've absorbed by virtue of our society, our community, our culture, our ethnicity, our family. And our motivations, the thing that actually cause us to do or not do, the intrinsic incentives. So character sits as a shell or a layer over temperament. Temperament is the natural inborn tendencies. And I'll say tendencies because they're not fixed. They, they can be modified and this is what I mean that you you would tend to be this way you'd be prone to be this way but with some training with uh, a life change either good or bad that can be changed temperament sits just underneath character which is the modulation of temperament once it has been formed by these things like our childhood training education basic attitudes and beliefs and principles. Now in this church, our pastor has taught us time and time again of what character is not. We've learned that character is not giftings. Character is not talents. And we also know that character is a choice. You can choose the kind of character you have. And because character is a choice, character can also be developed. So we have, we have temperament, and then over temperament, we lay character, and then over character, we lay personality. And your personality then is simply the outward expression of yourself. It's how you choose to 
express your character-determined temperament outwardly to the world. And what we can say is, is that your personality is often the same as your character, but it's not always. I mean, depending on how genuine you are, you know, there are some people who are very good at putting on a different personality, which differs from their character. So depending on how genuine you are, your personality and character would be fairly similar. That's why we speak about some people and we say, yeah, you know, with that guy, what you see is what you get, you know, what you see is his personality, but what you get is his character. Now, the thing about personality is that we all try on different personas, depending on the circumstance. So at different, you know, de developmental stages of our lives, when we were adolescents, we were trying on all different kinds of personas, you know, and we express it by how we dress? Am I going to wear baggy jeans and express myself as a gangster? Or am I going to wear skinny jeans and express myself as a princess? You know, am I going to change the way I speak, change the way I slang, depending on who I'm with? And we try on these personas. Oftentimes, when we are having a crisis of identity, when we are not sure who we are, or when other people are not sure who we are, that identity crisis resides in the place of our personality. There's basically a tension between what it is we are trying to express of our temperament and our character at any given point in time. So if we take those three layers, temperament, character, and personality, how does this relate to our soul? We know, because we've been taught in this church by our pastor, that the soul is made up of three parts. It's made up of our thoughts, how we think. It's made up of our, our emotions, how we feel. And it's made up of our will, how we will, how we choose, how we uh, enact our agency. If we take the soul as a circle and we divide it into three, where we've got our thinking, our feeling, and our willing. What I would say to you is, is that if you were to layer thinking and feeling, that's where you would find your layer of temperament, your layer of character, and your layer of personality. And so when we talk about putting off the old man, when we talk about putting to sleep the soul man, what we're, we're talking about is about overcoming the temperament. Now letting the modifications that will affect the temperament be not only about our upbringing or our schooling or our formally held principles and beliefs, but also then about allowing our spirit man to arise. And we know that our spirit man, if we are godly leaders, our spirit man will arise as we surrender to the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit takes up more space in our spirit and, and drives now the will and changes our soul, changes our temperament. So once the Holy Spirit is animating our spirit man, he's modifying our character He's modifying then our temperament internally, and then he's modifying our personality externally. So what are the four basic temperaments? I don't think this is new for anyone, but it bears repeating. We know that we have four, we have five, but let's just look at the basic four this evening. Sanguine, choleric, melancholic, and phlegmatic. And the reason why people with the same temperament are not all identical is because though we have these four basic temperaments, we are all a variety of blends with the secondary temperament. So you may have one dominant temperament, you might be dominantly sanguine, but then you might have a secondary temperament you might be secondarily choleric or secondarily phlegmatic. And so the proportion in which you have the dominant and the secondary temperament 
will vary across people. And if you do the, the maths, what it basically ends up with 12 possibilities of temperament. So that's one reason why not all sanguines are the same, because they might not all be the same proportions or the same combinations of their secondary temperament. But also remember that temperament gets filtered through character and personality. So this is the reason why if you have 10 melancholics, they won't all be the same. There will be some variation within the temperament it itself. But largely, when we study the temperaments, we can see that there are particular traits. There are particular traits. Now, for each temperamental weakness, and again, I want us to think about the temperamental weaknesses in terms of sin. Let's just call them sin. There's a specific fruit of the Holy Spirit that you need to cultivate. So depending on whatever temperament you have and whatever weaknesses you have in that temperament, there's a specific fruit of the Holy Spirit for you that you need to cultivate in order to overcome that sin, overcome that weakness, and in order to then overcome your temperament, allow your temperament to be modified by the Holy Spirit. And like any fruit, I mean, all fruits are good, but not all fruit is the same. You know, we have some fruit that are sweeter than others. We have some fruit that are only seasonal. So some fruit is seasonal. We have some fruit that needs to be peeled, whereas other fruit can just be eaten straight from the branch. And then we have some fruit that can be eaten in different, different ways. You can eat it raw. You can dry it. You can fry it. You can bake it. So all fruit is good, but not all fruit is the same. And this is important for us to understand, to appreciate, because as we saw in our text this evening, and we're going to return to it, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a man, that man will be changed into a different person. And so the change comes based on what the fruit is. So let's go back to our text. Now, some of you might have recognized the story. Many of you probably did not. So let us take our time and understand it. And for those of you who have just joined us again, let us, let us look back at our text. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. So that's a clear message on leadership. And the context of the scripture is this is part of the story of Saul's anointing as the first king of Israel. And so in leadership terms, we know that up until this time, Israel had been led first through the patriarchs, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they were a family. And then after generations, when that family grew, and multiplied in Egypt, they were led out of Egypt by a prophet, Moses. And when Moses gives the Levitical laws to Israel, it becomes a season in the life of the nation where they are led by prophets, Joshua, and then they are led by judges. And then we get Samuel, who gets raised up as a prophet the last prophet judge. And the people of Israel have told him that they want a king. They want a new form of leadership. They want to be led in a new way. And so God gives them Saul because that's the kind of king they wanted. When the scene opens up in chapter 9, we're introduced to Saul simply as a man who's very tall and quite handsome. And this is all we know about him. Of course, we know about his family lineage. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Kish. But we don't really get any other information about him. And the story is that Saul's father has lost his donkeys. And so the father Kish sends Saul out with one of the servants to go and look for the donkeys. And it's while they're searching for the donkeys that the servant says, well, where we find ourselves right now, in fact, there's a seer 
who lives here. Why don't we go and find out from him where your father's donkeys are? And when they meet Saul, oh, so, I'm sorry, when they meet Samuel, Samuel, in this moment that we've read, he secretly anoints Saul, telling him that he is going to be the king of Israel. And it's in this moment of anointing that the chapter, that the verse 6 tells us what the prophet Samuel says about the spirit of the Lord coming powerfully upon him, Saul. And that Saul will begin to prophesy when he's going down the hill. He's going to come across a company of prophets. They're going to be singing and praising and worshiping on their lyres and on their harps. And the atmosphere is going to be so heavy that Saul himself will begin to prophesy. And in that moment, Saul will be changed into a different person. And once the sign has been fulfilled, Saul should know that whatever he finds himself doing by way of leadership, he should do it because the Lord is with him. And so, as I said, the scripture doesn't tell us much about the kind of person that Saul was, but we can deduce a few clues on Saul's temperament if we read it carefully. So when Saul gets back home and his uncle starts asking him questions, Saul answers some of the questions, but Saul very strategically leaves out the part of the conversation that he had with the prophet. He doesn't tell his uncle everything that the prophet said. A little while later, when Samuel calls Israel together and they're drawing lots because Samuel is coming to now announce that, in fact, the Lord has spoken and will give Israel a king. When they draw lots, the lots fall onto the tribe of Benjamin, they fall onto the family of Kish, and they fall on Saul. And when they begin to look for Saul, they say, where is he? Saul's nowhere to be found because the Bible tells us he was hiding. He was hiding amongst the stuff. He was hiding amongst the supplies. And then when Samuel anoints Saul publicly and then sends everyone home back to their tribes, there are some men who stand up valiantly to serve Saul, but there are some other scoundrels, the Bible calls them, and they dishonor him, even though he's now been announced as king. They murmur about him, and they don't give him any gifts. And the only thing that the Bible says about this is that Saul kept quiet. So based on those three points, I want to suggest to you this evening that Saul was melancholic. Hmm. <laughs> I'm able to deduce that because I can recognize a melancholic when I see him. And so for those melancholics on the line, I want you to know that there's nothing wrong with being a melancholic in and of itself, in and of itself. But the problem, Saul's problem, and your problem and my problem, is the inability to overcome the temperamental weaknesses. And so when we begin now to look at the rest of Saul's story, based on these early clues that we have in chapter 9 and chapter 10, we see that Saul was not able to overcome his temperamental sins, and it cost him. It cost him his leadership, and it cost him the kingdom. And this issue, if we just pause here for one moment, this issue of not being able to overcome the temperamental weakness, the sin, let's, let's, it's helpful if we refer to it as sin, because it makes it more urgent for us to do something about, repent of it, recognize that we fall short of the glory of God when we're trapped by it. It's this inability to overcome the temperamental sin that causes us to miss it, causes us to miss the mark. So we're back right where we started with Paul running the race, keeping his eyes on Jesus because Jesus is the mark. The mark is moving. The mark is not standing still. It's going ever forward leading us and calling us into ever deeper levels of leadership, of ministry, of stewardship. But the problem is, is that we all fall short of the mark. We fall short 
of the glory of God because all have sinned. So the Bible is populated with stories of men who were unable to overcome their temperamental sin. Moses couldn't do it. Gideon couldn't do it. Peter couldn't do it. How do we know about Peter? In Acts chapter 10, when Peter is on the roof in a trance and the sheet comes down and he sees all of those unclean animals and the Lord says, Peter, get up and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, how can I? I'm so righteous. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. You can't get me to start doing that now. Peter missed it. Peter was unable to overcome his temperament, his temperament of always being rash. Even though he was in a trance, he wasn't spiritual in that moment. Because who says no to God? Peter was going back to the, to the mistake that he made when he said to Jesus, no, you will not die on the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So Peter wasn't able to overcome it. And we see that that's the last time we hear from Peter in the book of Acts. It seems to me that, that we have one exemplar, one person who was able to overcome his temperamental sin in such a definitive way. And this is Paul. Because what we see then in Acts chapter 13 is when Paul's eyes are full of scales, when they are full of blindness, when Paul is confused. And the light of Jesus tells him that he has to stop kicking against the pricks. He has to stop fighting with this temperament. He's got to get over it. The moment the scales fall from his eyes, the Bible tells us that immediately Paul gets up. He eats something, but after he's eaten, he goes and he preaches that Jesus Christ is Lord. It didn't take him three days. It didn't take him two weeks. He immediately began to preach. This is the example of us. This is what it looks like when you decide to overcome your temperamental sin. Now, by now, I'm sure many of you know that one of my favorite, favorite, favorite scriptures is Revelations 2.17, Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamos, where he says, to the one who overcomes, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. And I love that scripture. It just captures my imagination because I want my new stone. <laughs> In other words, whatever they used to call you by virtue of your temperament, the promise that Jesus makes is that if you can overcome it, if you can overcome your old man, if you can put away your child man, if you can put away your soul man, and if you can allow your spirit man to awake, if you can allow your spirit man to arise, if you can allow the Holy Spirit to reign in you, you'll be called something new. You'll be called something new because you would have changed. The scripture tonight tells us that the Spirit of the Lord will powerfully come upon you and you will be a different person. And so this is where Saul finds himself. He finds himself surrounded by this passing company of prophets. And as I said, the atmosphere was so strong that in that moment, Saul is changed. In that moment, Saul is changed. But what's the problem here? The problem is, is that Saul didn't pursue the Spirit. Not the way the Apostle Paul told us last week that he stretches forward because he hasn't grabbed it yet. We see Saul, King Saul, first Saul, proto-Saul. We see Old Testament Saul in this moment being grabbed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord powerfully falling upon him. Saul now prophesying with the company of prophets to the point that they say, hey, is Saul also amongst the prophets? So in this moment, the Spirit has grabbed him. 
But unlike the Apostle Paul, Saul does not stretch forward to take hold and grab of that which took hold of him. He does nothing with it. He doesn't go after the Holy Spirit. Saul lets the Spirit go. And Saul just continues down the hill, back home, back to his old man, back to soul man. And as I said, the scripture gives us some clues about Saul's character. Remember that we defined character as being the things that modulate temperament. So early childhood training, your upbringing, your schooling, your basic attitudes. We can deduce some of this from not how Saul is described, but how his father is described. His father, Kish, is described as being a man of standing, and his father and his father and his father are named, so this must have been a fairly important family for the Bible to record their genealogy. There was a Benjamite, chapter 9 says, a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia, of Benjamin. So that tells us a little bit about maybe the kind of upbringing, the kind of household, the kind of family that Saul was raised in. He probably had a lot of privileges even though Benjamin was the least of the tribes, within the tribe of Benjamin, this family appears fairly important. So Saul would have had a lot of privileges that would have affected his character, his basic attitudes, his beliefs, his principles. Saul is described as being tall and handsome. That probably also gave him a lot of privileges. There was no one who looked like him in all of Israel. We see that when Saul becomes king, He's not very bold, not very decisive. We get this from the story of Goliath. I mean, Saul had been there with the rows of Israel for 40 days, listening to these taunts and these threats from this giant, and not leading his troops into battle, but just sort of enduring the threats from the enemy until the 17-year-old kid from the field, from the backwoods, shows up. So Saul was not very bold or decisive. And we see that when David's reputation begins growing, we see Saul becoming more suspicious and more fearful of David. And we know that Saul's ultimate downfall was the fact that he was a man-pleaser, that he was afraid of what the people would say, and this is what led him to disobey the prophet, to not wait for the prophet. He wanted to look good in the eyes of the people. Even after the prophet had rebuked him, he said, okay, 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 but just at least like, shh, don't talk so loud for the people to hear. At least walk along with me so that we look as though we're together. And we don't have any record of Saul being particularly a man of faith, particularly prayerful, particularly worshipful. All of this to say that Saul's motivations and Saul's beliefs, what he believed about himself and the world, what motivated him to do things or to not do things, without the help of the Holy Spirit, all of that simply compounded his temperamental weaknesses. So we saw that Saul started off, when we meet Saul, he's melancholic if you can detect it, <laughs> but I think he, he was. So we say that Saul was melancholic, but as his story goes on, without the constraining power, without the protective power, without the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit, Saul is going deeper and deeper into his temperamental weaknesses. He's getting deeper and deeper into his te temperamental sins as a melancholic. And this reaches its pinnacle in the scripture where we see that an evil spirit from the Lord 
came upon Saul. Now the translation there for the word evil, we translate it to English as evil, but it can also be the word harmful. So a harmful spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul. And this is when they have to call for David and get David to play the harp to soothe Saul's soul. And when I read that now, what I understand about that statement is not that God sent an evil spirit upon Saul in that moment, but that the original temperaments that God created, God created all of the temperaments. He creates sanguine, he creates melancholic, phlegmatic, choleric. He creates them all. But in that moment, Saul succumbs to his temperamental sin, to the sin of his melancholy. And if you are a melancholic, you know sometimes how dark and how deep and and how dangerous a place that can be. So it's not that the Lord in this moment sends an evil spirit after Saul. It's that in that moment, without the restraining power of the Spirit of God within Saul, Saul is left to succumb to the deepest sin of his spirit that he had, the, the, the temperament that he had in this case, which was melancholy. And so then it gets expressed in that depression. And so where does this leave us? Where does Saul's story leave us tonight? Well, I hope that it leaves us at least with an appreciation that as godly leaders, we must know our temperaments. And we must know that because we are marred by sin, each of these temperaments within us is marred by sin, then we have to be discerning about which fruit of the Holy Spirit is going to specifically help us to overcome our temperamental sin. And I had actually intended this evening to just make a table with each of the temperaments and just go through the list of what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, and what what their tendencies are, and based on that, which fruit of the Holy Spirit you need. But the Holy Spirit took me into this story of Saul, and that's taken up our time this evening. So God willing, next week we can look practically at each of these temperament so that you can begin the diagnostic work that you need to do on yourself. But I'm blessed by this look into Saul's story and how without the fruit of the Holy Spirit, each of us are in danger of succumbing to the temperamental sin that lurks at the bottom of that temperament. If we allow, if we yield ourselves and if we surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit and to the particular fruit that we need, whether it's joy, whether it's love, whether it's long-suffering, whether it's self-control, whether it's faithfulness, whether it's goodness, if we surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit to be able to overcome whatever temperamental sin we are prone to, then the scripture tells us that we will indeed be changed just as Saul was in that moment that he would begin to prophesy, that they would say about him that he is one of the prophets, and that when that sign had been fulfilled, that Saul was now authorized. Saul had the power and the jurisdiction, the power and the authority for leadership, that whatever he found to do, he should do it with all his might because God was with him. What I'm trying to say is that in that moment, in that moment when the Spirit comes upon you and you are changed into a different person, it's a moment of possibility. It's a moment of possibility, but it's just a moment. What we see from the stories is that Saul missed it, that Saul did not grab onto it and he did not hold on to that moment. He did not hold on to the Holy Spirit in that moment. And so that moment left him. 
the spirit left him, and Saul missed it. It cost him his leadership. It cost him the kingdom. Because he did not grab what Jesus had grabbed him for, Saul's hands are empty. The leadership, the kingdom were torn from his hands. And I emphasize this because I think that this should be a real concern for all of us. That every now and then we should ask ourselves, just as the Apostle Paul did, am I really straining forward to attain it? Am I really stretching forward to grab it? Am I really running after Jesus, who is the mark? Am I still being changed by the Spirit of God in order to lead? Or was I simply changed in a moment when I was in a particular atmosphere, but now I've gone back to my old temperament with all of its limitations and all of its sin? Am I leading out of my soul, man? Or am I leading out of my spirit, man? And just by a final word, a reminder, the Apostle Paul tells us that the soul man is the childish one. And that's the one that must be put away. And so I pray for us this evening. I pray that we will have the desire to reach forward and grab it. Grab Jesus because he has taken hold of us. I pray that we would continue to stretch forward because we have not obtained it yet. I pray that in that moment, when the Spirit of God comes upon you powerfully and that you are changed, that you will do whatever it takes to stay in that moment so that you will not miss it, so that you will not succumb to your temperamental sins, and that so as you overcome your weaknesses, that you will be given by Jesus, that white stone that has inscribed your new name on it. Amen.